We are in a series on Samuel, and only one chapter this week, guys, is better than the three and a half to four last week, so you only got one chapter, and it's even a short one, so here you go, from 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel grew old, he anointed his sons as judges for Israel. I'm sorry, children, you are dismissed. I guess you got that. Sorry. <laughs> Let me read that again. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said, or Ramah, they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving others, other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly, and let them know what the, king, what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign, who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will in front, run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to your attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen, then to, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. Thanks, uh, Giorgio, for reading that scripture there. Just to let you know, I'm, <clears throat> I actually am coming out of a different version, but it's not that much different, so we'll be okay. And the scripture has been read. So I was reading this, and as I look at our world, I believe human beings by nature are fair-weather fans. 
when things are going well, everyone is our hero. And the way things are done will be that way always. And we will fight for it to stay the same. But in failure, in isolation, in uncertainty, we want to fire and hire. It is obviously not just an 1100 B.C. problem as we see in Scripture. I mean, look at our culture. Our sports, when you turn on ESPN or any sports network, it's really, really is sports news about who is going to retire this year. But it's always about who's going to get fired or traded or who got mad at their contract. I mean, look at our reality shows, The Bachelor, The Apprentice, Fair Factor, American Idol. We keep coming back just to see who deserves to get the boot. We don't care about developing relationships or growing in character or waiting to see whether someone's going to be home to fit in. We believe in getting rid of people and relationships that just don't seem to work. I need not mention at this time of year our political system in which if you're the president, you get two years to move your stuff in and then two years to fight for re-election in partisan politics. Clinton had to go, now Bush has to go, and whoever will be next in four years will have to fight to not have to go. It's a good system or not, I don't know. We want what and who seems to work now. Why not cut God loose? Why not supersede or footnote or retire his plan and in doing so retire him? Why not? I mean, he is a God who invisible and works in strange ways. Come on. For those of you here who claim to be Christians or who once claimed to be devout Christians, how many times have you been left with your God described as sitting on the throne of heaven, knowing and feeling failure, knowing and feeling alone, knowing and feeling left at times in uncertainty. I believe we are tempted in these times to dismiss God, to replace him, to move ahead of him. And if you're not a Christian, to not join our lives with such an uncontrollable, unpredictable, so-called God and King. But what we see explained here and, and then later unfolding in the future narratives of Israel's desire for a king is that God, for our sake, will not and cannot be dethroned. He, he will not allow us to spiral because of failure into futility. He, he will not allow us to fake relationship with someone or, or something that does not and cannot ultimately care for us. He will not allow uncertainty to lead us into utter darkness. You see, he alone, he, the Lord alone, is the king. He alone is who you need. You should keep him. No, he should be the one who keeps you. So even in failure, in life's failure, he calls us to look to him, the king, the Lord alone in life's failure. 
Now, as we looked in the scripture, Samuel is getting old. In other words, he is on the way to die. And his death will bring an end to the one who brought them success. I mean, Samuel led them in the battle. He won the victory. He made God alive again. And now he is getting old and it won't be long. This is just life. Things and people will wear out. People and things will wear thin and break. And they won't hold as long as we want them to. This life's failure is what the Bible calls the results of a fallen world, the results of human sin. And, and we can say it another way. Things just ain't right and don't go right here. Some of us say life happens, stuff happens, or, or use other more colorful metaphors. And we can say, yes, God made it happen, or it's just bad mojo, or it's just karma. But life fails us. It lets us down. It brings an end to happiness and to good things or good times or good situations or good people or good relationships. But apart from life's failures, there are also human failures. Look at Samuel's sons and their self-centeredness to be the leaders the people needed. They're running a scheme to get rich. And in a sincere need to be just for the people, Samuel's sons failed in their offices. They failed in their positions and they let the people of God down, taking advantage of their weaknesses, taking advantage of their need to get help. There was a human failure to be just and to get justice. But there's something further here. There is an apparent failure in Samuel. The one who led them in battle. I mean, he was the man for them. There was an apparent failure in Samuel in raising and setting up his boys properly, possibly. I mean, it wasn't like one of his sons were good. Both came out evil. I mean, this should beckon us back to Eli's uh, inability to deal with his sons. Samuel was the one who failed to judge character. And I thought about maybe he wanted, like any other father, to have his sons carry on his legacy, though they were apparently incapable of it. Yes, Samuel, the one these books are named after, may have some vanity about himself. Now, we've talked in the past about how hard and impossible it is for human beings to avoid vanity when in positions of authority. Samuel let the people down too. I want my sons to succeed me, though they're evil. And they weren't going, excuse me, they weren't going to have it any longer. No more men of God. No more passion and spiritual stuff. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king who would not bring failure or weakness. You see, a king is, is in the idolatry of the other nations was, was like God on earth. That's why God says here in the scripture, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Ever since I took them out of Egypt, they've been wanting to follow other gods. And asking for a king, it was like having God on earth earth he was superhuman what he represented the monarchy would never fail it was divinity on earth 
See, the nation's view of kingship was a place and position that regardless of what was said or done, it could never be wrong, never truly fail. They were accepted and received and desired as infallible mediators of victory and of success. Here's the problem. Apart from looking to a king in an idolatrous way, their relationship with God and God's relationship with them was never based on human success. It was about and for and by something that could never fail. God's gift and relationship and promise to them. A promise again that they would be his people and he would be their God. And in that, even even in human life failures, those failures would be managed by him to that end. That I will manage and deal with the failures so that you would be my people and I would be your God. That God and his purposes and promises would never fail. But let's be honest, it feels like failure in our lives. How can I put this? God calls people to win in life by upset. He never calls us to be successful for and by the means and and measure of victory around them. I mean, like the Israelites, a storm had to come out of nowhere for them to win. I mean, a sea has to open up. A miracle has, has to happen. Here's the problem. We don't like to win by upset. We fear personal failure too much. You know what God's done? He's called us a bunch of Rudies, if you will. We're we're second string. We're walk-on. And God puts us in the game. And the only way we can win is some sort of strange upset happens. A kick is is, is kicked up and the wind blows it in. or, Or someone catches who isn't supposed to catch. Or somebody else fumbles. And God puts us in those situations. Why, Lord, do you call people to win by upset? It just feels like failure. We want our ducks in a row. We want to know. We want to understand how and why and get rid of the bugs and kinks and weak links in our lives. We do it by hiring the next greatest scheme or we get into relationship with this group of people or that person in an attempt to secure a victory for the failure that we have experienced in life. We want a king. We want a means that will lift us out of depression. We want something or someone that will fill the empty hole. Something or someone you can wrap your mind around. Something real. But let's be honest. Failure is inevitable in anything and everything we look to, to heal us, to help us, to aid us. Whether it's a new book or you're in some type of new Bible study, or you have this new job, or friendship, or house, or relationship, or marriage, or car, or degree, or maybe you're fighting some cause for anything that you put your blood and sweat and tears in, guess what? It will soon get old. It will break. It will soon die. It will soon let you down. We will not even be able to supply what we must to it for it to work. Like the king who will have many demands to be successful, it 
or they or that thing we look to will run us dry in failure, in letdown. We don't need another potential failure or king. I mean, come on, we've had enough of that. We need the king. You know exactly what we need, even though we hate it? We need an upset for the way life and people fail us and defeat us. In human failure, in life's failure, in the stuff you felt like the bottom fell out, even in death, we must and can look to God who has and can out of nowhere bring and deliver an upset for us. You know, he mentions here, I brought you out of Egypt. There's no way these slaves in Egypt should have gotten out. We need an upset to life's and human failure. We need a person. We need a plan that is the Hail Mary for life. You know, we need a three-point shot and the foul. We need a wind from the east to turn and twist the off kick in failure. God upset is this, that beings like us, filled and racked by mistake after mistake, that people like you and me who fall short and sin and do all the wrong things, who by virtue of living here experience forsaking and let down, here's the upset factor. A perfect God who can never fail has decided to love those who will fail to remember and love him. That he will care for those and bring them into his redemption, into a relationship with him. And because it is solely on his efforts over and against any kind of failure, his upset will never fail. But the people are not only asking for some help in their failure. They're wanting someone to be there for them, to not have them be alone in such a hard world. I mean, there's the Philistines there. Look with me at verse 1 through 5. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father. They were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, the leaders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with, with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king like all the other nations. And then if we look at verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning after he warned him about a king. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will govern us and lead us into battle. What are they saying? Samuel, yes, you see and hear from God, but you will leave us alone soon, and there is no appropriate leader who will see and hear us and see and hear for us. And this goes back to his sons. They did not truly see or hear from the people. They were looking out for themselves. They can only see and hear for their own pockets. And we will see in the next chapter, apparently prophets, people who are gifted to speak to God's people for God's good, were becoming the, 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 the 1100 B.C. version of 900 numbers, where you have to pay first to get your fortune told. 
They wanted someone who was with them and would watch over them. Scripture says govern them, to lead them. They wanted someone who saw them and heard them and thus would justly take up their cause. But here's the problem. Having a king was just like the other nations. It was an idol. An idol is a human design false sense of comfort. comfort. And it's, in its simplest form, it's a piece of wood or metal that, guess what? It cannot see you or hear you or truly have relationship with you. Here's what relationship would look like with an idol. That as long as you can see your God, or in this case, king, as long as you believe he's taking up your cause, then it was all good. But what they wanted was more than what the judges failed to provide. Obviously, they wanted one who saw them, one who they could, who heard them, one who could then care for them. And God's warning and call says this, I delivered you out of Egypt. It calls them and us back to remember that when they were slaves in Egypt, God heard their cries of despair and pain and he saw them and he delivered them and in doing so he declared I alone see and hear and know and love sincerely a king of their choosing would not and could not hear them and see them and truly care for them there's something else here though A king will see and hear for them, not to care for them, but to care for himself and his work for them. If we look at the verses between verses 10 and 18, what does it say? He's going to draft you in the army. When he sees you, he's going to get this person to cook some bread for him. And he's going to have this person bringing a cup to him. He sees you for what you can do for him. As a matter of fact, when they do choose a king, King Saul, 1 Samuel 14, 52 says this, that Saul, when he saw a young man who was brave, what? He would draft them into his army. You know, I've always wondered this question, and it's something that's driven me. It's something that pains me. Does anyone truly see me and hear me and know me? and still love me? I think about that. Sometimes I even run from friendships because I don't believe it's possible to be known and still loved. You know, I'm I'm willing to bet that nine out of ten of your interactions with people or systems or associations are are about being accepted and cared for as hard as you can keep your eye and attention and keep up with what they demand of you. I'm willing to bet that nine out of ten of those so-called relationships are more about knowing you to use you than knowing you to simply love you. And the Israelites will be called to be stressed out and work to the bone and die for a king that did not know them. And we, like them, were continually stressed and worked and emotionally and spiritually worn thin and ruined by ideals or people 
anything that rules your attention and makes you so-called known. And guess what? They don't really see you or hear you or know you or love you in that knowledge. Are you really known? And if you're known, are you really loved? Not for what you can do, but because they simply want to know you and love you. We so desperately desire as human beings to have somebody govern us, to have someone see us in our good times, to have people see us in our bad times, to have people hear us and and say, I truly know who you are, and guess what? I love you. I'm concerned about you. And God is warning, no, urging us to, to look to the one alone who knows you, who hears you and sees you for your own good, for his love to be poured upon you, for his benefits to be given to you. God says to us, come to me, the one who alone does not need you to do anything to be acceptable to him, but is granted acceptance by and simply for his love for you. But even that is not enough. They're still in the dilemma. They're vulnerable and weak people. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine what they're like. They're they're nomads who who found a home. They they don't have iron weapons. They're not very organized. And and they're just, you know, beginning each generation to rediscover this God. He's he's not very old to them. And and they're looking across at the Philistines and thinking, who will take care of that dilemma and mess out there? We're weak. Who will go in our weakness against them? But who will promote who we are against who and what they are? Who will hold and represent and keep our identity intact? We need a king. Your version says it this way. We want a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, we want someone who in our weakness will be strong. Someone in our failure and fear will do what is impossible for us to do. One who will deserve and earn what we could not and cannot in our deficiencies and inadequacies. But they miss completely what God had warned and urged them through Samuel. The king will actually have you go before him. And make you and your children lead in battle. Scripture says it this way, that he will call the young men to run before his chariots. Why does he do that? Because he's hoping that the first arrows that come hit them and that he is kept alive. I mean, the young people who go in war before the chariot will actually become the, the human pavement for the king's chariot. Yet they they want someone who's going to help them. A king will not get you what you can't get in your inadequacies. He will actually exploit your weaknesses for his strength. He's going to call you to be his slaves. A king will not bring you relief in your issues and dilemma. A king of your choosing will make you cry out because you're burdened and in bondage. A king will drive you to get what you want. 
A king of your choosing will actually enslave and in some extremes drive you to your death in dealing with the dilemmas that face you. And this description of a king should come across as an opposite to what God has declared himself to be for them in verse 8. The king, the king, the one they rejected, rejected, delivered them from bondage and gives and delivers what? And in a way they don't deserve and earn. He alone is the king we need in our human dilemma. Most of us here are driven and enslaved, ironically, by the things we look to outside of the Lord for help against what ails us and hurts us and dehumanizes us. Work, ideals and causes, politics, pleasure and fun, they're all can become kings against guilt that we can't shake. They're kings against abuse that we've suffered. They're kings against being demoralized as maybe unimportant. They're kings to battle your fears and experiences of simply being abandoned. You've called for a king against what we saw earlier of not being known and loved by anyone. Some of us, like I have, have actually asked the Lord for stuff to deal with issues here. Sometimes even hiding it in religious talk. Oh, Lord, if you only do this, who are we fooling? We shouldn't let the righteous, religious part of it fool us. Some of us look to good stuff. We look to righteous stuff that can be asked for, pursued and used in, and for certain things and, and to help us in ways God alone should help us. We have asked for a certain mate. And that's good, but not the king. Some of us have asked to, to stay at home with the kids or have a certain size home or lose this much weight or ask for a certain income or a certain job or a certain look or life. We, we, we've prayed to God and, and, and sweated to have a certain relationship or have a certain gift or success or we want to go on this kind of vacation and that's good. But often we ask and seek for those things to heal and touch in us what cannot be touched. And now you and I cry for relief from the thing we wanted so badly. The thing we thought would save and redeem and make our life better. Some of you have experienced unexplainable hurt by our parents by your family, left or rejected. Some of us have sustained serious blows in the loss of someone we thought loved us. Some of us have been lied to and used and now in, in sheer terror of those things taking you, in sheer despair of being trapped and held hostage by thoughts and emotions that are too hard for you to bear, you are driven and enslaved to perform your way out. Some of us are driven and enslaved to, to work our way out or be perfect or driven and enslaved to paint or play or sing or dance our way out. Some of us are driven to, to pleasure our way out or driven to explain and understand your way out. Some of you even are driven and enslaved to suffer your way out. 
Some of us have our king is like having a hard heart. If we could just have a hard resolve against the world, some of us are driven and enslaved to actually pretend our way out. And the Lord says, any king you have to go before and ward off the personal and spiritual demons you face will ultimately drive you to despair and bondage. Let me ask you this. When will the battle that you and your king are engaged in end? When will the running before the whip and chariot of what drives you stop? When will you ever earn and deserve to be cared for and loved and healed? When will you ever get there? When will it, are you ever be good enough? You won't. And no king you can choose and go before you can get you there. No king except the king. Who will go before us? Who will fight our battles? Who will affirm that we are worth something? Who will free us from performing or trying to be religious to be accepted or burdened and whipped to be righteous? Who will be whipped for us and be burdened for us? The king of God's choosing will in real time and space. The Lord is and has sent the king we need in Christ. Ultimately, God's chosen king for us by his righteousness has defeated the adversaries of humankind. He has surely made us acceptable and holy before truly going before us to battle against what we could not, taking on the sin and issues and guilt and death that was for us. He took them upon himself, not because you have deserved it, but because he simply wants to love those who are unlovable. He loves you with an unconditional love. God declares in Christ, I have not called you to earn and slave and deserve my love in the real results of what I do. He comes to free us as the king from pretending from being driven by what is not living and loving, from being enslaved to never be free. You see, God sent Jesus to go before the chariot of his justice to be bruised and crushed in the battle for your soul and your life. God sent Jesus in your place to be taken and demoralized, and dehumanized, and treated like a slave, becoming a slave for you. God is calling you to look to the king and trade in a king, to replace your king, just a king, for the one who is the king. God says, I am the king for a king. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've come to free us from what drives and enslaves us. 
we pray, Lord, that we would look to you, the King, Christ. We would not look to our own righteousness or our own deserving of it or our own ability to make it work. But Lord, we call that call you and ask that you would bring a upset to an upset to our lives. That God would come and die for those who are ungodly. Let this truth permeate our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord remind